Last week, or up to this point, we've been wa- walking alongside of one stream of Christianity. Uh, it was more of a, a semi-unified church to this point. And uh, we looked at the divide that occurred. There was a fork in the road with the East and the West doing a complete separation from one another. And we discussed some of the reasons for that, the political issues, the, the, the cultural issues, and some of the merging doctrinal considerations that they each considered. And now we're going to uh, consider some of the, the main emphases that occurred um, during the Middle Ages that solidified the main teachings of the Catholic Church. Um, some of these are more familiar to us in terms of acquaintance with the, with the church in which they began to confuse the work of Christ by overvaluing human merit as a means to secure one's salvation. And this is what we would call doctrinal corruption in which it, it, it starts to change incrementally, and by the time you get two or three iterations, it starts to become a floodwater, and then you, then you can't even recognize uh, the original teaching. And so we're going to uh, walk through that a little bit here this morning and how the church uh, confused uh, the atoning work of Christ. And it largely starts uh, with the, the headship in the Western church. So as I said, we, we, to this point, we've been thinking about East and West together and some of the, the, the changes and diversions that were going to start to appear. But now we're really going to focus more on the Western side because it has much more of a significance to the influences upon even our church here today. Um, and so the papacy and uh, the rise of the influence of the bishops in the early centuries was a paving ground for the uh, elevation of a singular bishop that would preside over the others. And um, I think the idea basically came about because of the prominence of the Roman church um, in the empire. It was a very significant uh, and influential uh, 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 seat of authority. And you've seen in scriptures where Peter and Paul had some experience there in the city. And if Paul was faithful to communicate to Titus to appoint elders in every city, there's no doubt that when Paul or Peter were in Rome, they were doing the same thing. And so that, that gave a heightened sense of significance to the Roman church as having some significance to ideas and major uh, leaders in the church. Um, by the year 1000, though, the office of the Roman bishop had become so much different than how it originally started. And uh, the Roman bishop began to, to take on the authority for the church. Um, and a few items are worth noting to see how this authority developed. Um, the, first, the first pope uh, was Gregory the Great, uh, 540 to 604. He, he became what was per- widely perceived to be the first medieval type of pope that we would say is somewhat recognizable when we think of a centralized authority. And, uh, but he did some good things, and that's by the nature of these positions. People do good things for community, and then that also tends to centralize 
um, authority and responsiveness uh, to them. He uh, became a protectorate of the people. He began widely to be seen as a protectorate because the Roman Empire was going through phases of decline and there were foreigners coming in, attacking the city, and the Lombards were one of those people groups that came in from the northern, northern provinces and settled in northern Italy. And he set up a patronage system in which he started to give them money from the church coffers in order to placate them so that they would not sack the city of Rome. And so, as a protectorate for the people, his, his authority began to swell in the minds of people. And uh, he took a very proactive role in influencing and increasing the Roman church's presence in Germania and also uh, the French territories as well. By the late 8th century, um, uh, by the time of, of uh, Charlemagne, uh, the, the Pope uh, at that time was really starting to become the authority figure. And a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how that the Pope crowned Charlemagne, which was seen to be anathema by the Eastern Church, uh, something that would be totally inappropriate. He took on that power and, and took the assumptive power to, to designate who would be the next uh, Roman emperor. And uh, there was a document that circ began circulating in the 8th century that uh, swelled the authority of the, the papacy. That was called the Donation of Constantine. It's called a donation because it was written as if Constantine had donated a large section of Italy to the popes. And it was written as if uh, Sylvester I, Pope of Rome, was being given by Constantine uh, territories. Um, it was basically a propaganda piece. Kind of, you know, it's like we have propaganda in our world too. Someone leaks a story to the Wall Street Journal, and then some other news agency starts to talk about it, and then it all becomes this big thing that really never was. Well, that's what was going on here. This story was put out that Constantine had donated this land uh, and given authority to the Pope in Rome. And it was argued from this document that the Pope was to be the teacher, the preserver, the godfather of the emperor, the vicar through whom St. Peter displayed his power, and the supreme temporal lord of the West. That's in your handout. That's just an excerpt from that document. And it also tells the story as well, which we didn't quote but by the 12th and the 13th centuries, that's roughly 1198 to 1216, um, Pope Innocent, by this point, becomes the definitive marker of transition in the Catholic Church. To, to, up to this point, there's been these little, little, little deviations and changes, but now the floodwater takes place uh, under Innocent III, and he really wasn't that innocent, to be quite honest. Um, and I would say he was the most consequential pope in history uh, because he exchanged the title of the Vicar of Peter and exchanged it for the title Vicar of Christ as the mediator representative of Christ himself rather than just simply in a succession from Peter. And so he argued... Um, and I would just quote what he said. He said, We are the successors of Peter the prince, of the apostle, and we are not his vicar, nor are we the vicar of any man 
or any apostle, for we are the vicar of Jesus Christ himself. And he went on to say that the Lord Jesus Christ has established one sovereign, the Pope, over all his uh, universal vicar, from whom all things in heaven, earth, and hell should obey, even as they bow the knee to Christ. It's pretty strong. Um, but that identifies clearly, I think. Um, the fourth Lateran Council, uh, councils are often named for the location. Uh, there, are palaces, there are palaces in Rome uh, that were designated for the Pope, the Lateran uh, Palace. So this is called the Fourth Lateran Council, um, in which they, uh, among other doctrinal aberrations, they declared the Pope to be the ruler of all Christendom and be provided the first official distinction in that document. They also talked about transubstantiation as being the way we ought to view uh, the Eucharist. So there were a lot of uh, corruptions that took place even after that, as you can imagine. When you have all that power assumed to yourself, those who want to have influence in the empire will seek Greece money for favors. And um, Boniface VIII uh, took bribes and used his power to coerce civic rulers to get them to do uh, the bidding and submission to authority. Uh, after Boniface, uh, Clement V um, was appointed by, appointed to be a pope, but he, he lived in France, and he never, he never relocated to Rome, and that frustrated a lot of people. And uh, the church has historically called that the Babylonian captivity, when at that time the pope's headquarters were located in Avignon, France. And, um, and, and what, why this is significant is that what you're beginning to see is a lot of political maneuvers with the papacy. And by, by having his headquarters located in France, the kings in France felt like they had more influence than the, those uh, civic leaders that would be in Italy. And so tensions and divisions and politics and machinations, and of course, Christ uh, is none of that. And so you start to see that show up. And there's more emphasis that's being placed upon the man who occupies the office than the confessions of faith themselves. And so the authority really should be coming from the Scriptures, but you're seeing it centered in a person. Now, I did spend a little bit more time on this area, but I want to keep moving to think through deviations that have occurred. Uh, Mariology um, started to, to become more entrenched in uh, the Middle Ages, and that's the elevation of Mary to a mediating position. Now, back in the third and fourth centuries, we there was a lot of church discussion about the name of Mary. She was described as Theotokos, as being the mother of God, which on its own was very innocent from the standpoint it was necessary to preserve her identity so that the nature of Jesus Christ could be understood. That was an important discussion. However, taking that, the church then moved her up the ladder, so to speak, and said, we need to elevate her herself. And Mary's role as a mediator between mankind and Christ began to be established. And I won't take the time to go through some of the examples from the liturgies that started to develop. I could do that at another time. 
But what you see is a progressive change in which people began to honor Mary uh, for her position in relationship as a mother to Jesus and the emotional connection there that mothers have to, to children. And then gradually there was a, a prayers that were being given to Mary that she might possibly um, assist us in our reconciliation to Jesus um, because he took upon himself the sins and so he's therefore potentially angry at us, and so we need a mother's intervention to calm everything down. That's, a, that's kind of a very quick summary of thought. But these issues are not entirely in the past. The official church catechism actually teaches that she is taken up to heaven, and she did not lay aside this saving office, but by her manifold intercession continues to bring us the gifts of eternal salvation. And I think that's in your handout as well. What problems can you see coming from this? Maybe that's a silly question. It may, yeah, make your mar- and then hum- the human nature being changed into a deific. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, during this time period, uh, penance was a part of the process of how you secured your eternal security. Um, Many in the medieval church saw that baptism was a rite that washed away the effects of original sin and any sins that you had committed up to the point of baptism. So what do you do now? And so the process of atoning keeps going. And um, penance is doing, I think I have in your, your hand out there, is doing certain acts as restorative punishment for sins. In other words, these are designed to heal the rift that has occurred between you and Christ. Um, And so, the church began to emphasize over time our personal meriting of favor with with God. Um, So, I think I have listed there several sacraments. Um, There were seven that became established during that time period. These were mean, what would they call means of receiving grace from the church. And uh, I don't have that list here on my, my notes, but I think it's on your handout. Uh, someone just read them out loud for me. Baptism, Holy Communion, Confirmation, Penance, Marriage, Ordination, Extreme Unction, or the Last Rites. And that would, be, that would be ordination for, that would be something that the priest receives above the laity. And so, if you go into the priesthood, you've been granted a greater standing than others around you. Then you have, you have much more that you need to gain. And so, you can see a power differential starting to develop there. We're not all equal before the cross. And you see uh, that taking place. So, if Mary's role, what does it do? It diminishes Jesus' role, doesn't it? Okay. Um, what, what, do, what does our role of doing good works do? It does the same type of thing. It suppresses what Christ has done. Now, we don't deny the fact that we are to put off the old man and put on the new, but those are responses out of the grace that we've received. That's just a loving response of Christians. So, we don't deny 
that we ought to be purifying and changing. Uh, Colossians chapter 3 talks about put off the old new man, put on the new man. Uh, but this is a, a different approach in which you're starting to now uh, take on responsibility for your own personal salvation. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. There's, there's that as well. Now, per, uh, penance might be that you, because you have committed, maybe, maybe you've committed adultery. Maybe there's something that's been committed. I, it could be um, lying. It could be um, a sin, other kind of, I, you know. But, the, but what you would go is you would go to the priest and you would ask him, what can I do to make this right? And then the priest would give you terms and conditions and to say, that the, and so what they do is they start to evaluate sins and if it's not, if it's not a, um, there's venial and mortal sins. So a venial is, if I get my terms correct, is a less weighty, the mortal sins you can't atone for. You can't do anything about it. So, so, they, so there's a gradation of sins that start to, to develop. Now, I think intuitively we know that there are some sins that have a weightier sense than others. I get that. Um, but every sin is enough to sentence us to hell by holy God. And that's just a perversion, I think, of the process. Let me just go on to purgatory here as well. Um, what is meant by purgatory, it's an intermediate stage between heaven and earth where we are purged from our sins. Uh, uh, the Pope Innocent IV, the next one after the most consequential, uh, officially taught that there was a holding place for people who hadn't maybe completed their penance to, to purify and heal their position before God. And what happened is that you'd again go into an intermediary place of fire and you'd be purgated, you'd be purged from your sin so that you could then enter into the presence of God. And um, he says, I, I won't quote the, the, all of what his... Uh, statement is, but he says, in this temporary fire, sins not of course crimes and capital errors, which could not previously have been forgiven through penance, but slight and minor sins are purged. And if they have not been forgiven during existence, they weigh down the soul after death. And so when you die, if you have these weights within you, you're not able to, to ascend into the presence of God, and they have to be purged first. Um, the Council of Florence um, in 1439, just a natural progression after this is that then you want to care for your loved ones who have died and gone on. What do you do? Well, they began to say that you can make prayers for the dead, and you can start praying that God would relieve them so that they can then quickly enter into the presence of God. Um, yes, money's, money is... Money is exchanged as well. Purgatory um, leads very naturally to indulgences, uh, which is the next element here. Um, as if things weren't bad enough, um, an indulgence is a grant that pays some of the punishment for specific sins. And the idea that the church can apply some of the excesses of Christ's merit to people is the perversion of grace. Um, I had, I think last Sunday I talked about how Anselm talked about the satisfaction that Christ made. He was right to a point, and 
he was right on the mark. Christ's atonement did satisfy God's wrath and his sense of justice. But then he took a next step and said, not only did it satisfy, it super satisfied. And so that there is in heaven an abundance, a super arrogation. It was a super work. And so it actually, there's in heaven a treasure chest in which the church can then apply God's grace and distribute it through indulgence. Um, and that grew gradually through the Middle Ages, and indulgences could be given, as you pointed out, the money in exchange um, for release of your loved ones. And uh, oftentimes, these, uh, uh, you could hire someone to do penance for you, and you could, so a lot of monks would, would be hired for this purpose. Um, yeah, really, really, really bad stuff. Even participating in the Crusades was a way of, 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 of obtaining indulgence. So the last item here that of perversion, as if, again, this is not bad enough, <laughs> we have transubstantiation. Um, the doctrine of transubstantiation was developed during this time period, and the Fourth Lateran Council that I mentioned under uh, Innocent III officially made the pronouncement that Jesus' body and blood are truly contained in the sacrament of the altar under the forms of bread and wine. The bread being changed, transubstantiatus, by divine power into the body and the wine into the blood. This is, the, this is a corruption of, of Greek, the, Greek philosophy. Uh, Greek philosophy talked about things having a substance, like every, every man has a substantial essence. But my features look a little bit different than Matt. Matt Hoffman's. He's got a red, big Viking beard, and uh, I can hardly grow a beard. So if you were to describe me, you would be describing me by characteristics, but I would, that would not change my identity as a man, okay? So there'd be a presented, there's a presenting quality that they call accents, but the substance is still the same regardless of the accents that are associated. So what they did was they took this teaching of Aristotle and wedded it to the uh, table and said, while you may see the accents, you may see the, you may see the accents, for example, of bread, and you may see the accents of wine, but when the priest says the prayer, there is a transubstantiation of the substance, so that the external form still stays the same, but the internal essence is truly the body and the blood. And maybe, I, this is trivia, do you know where the name, where hocus pocus comes from? That Latin phrase, that's part of the ritual words that are used when the transubstantiation takes place in the prayer. And it's become a, a Protestant slur uh, of, of condemnation to this process. But during this, this, this era, the church um, developed rituals and the practice of, there's a phrase that became very popular during that time period. I'm not going to quote the Latin, but it literally means in doing it, it is done. And as you do the, do the system, it actually occurs. So you can become, you can come in very mindless to the Mass, and you can participate in the Mass, and because you've done it, 
it has actually happened. And very popular as well is that God will not deny His grace to those who do what lies within them. Or, in other words, if you do your very best, God will not deny His grace from you. And those mantras made a very lethargic congregation and um, allowed the church to exercise incredible power over the people. But during this era, there were seeds of reform that, that, that came about, and we're going to touch base on, on two significant individuals. And I say this is during the Middle Ages, so there were seeds of reform desired scattered throughout Europe. And John Wycliffe um, is uh, an Englishman who lived 1320s. We don't know his exact birth date, but he died in 1384. He's often called the Morning Star of the Reformation. And uh, he went to college at Oxford uh, and at 16 years of age. And uh, don't worry, the whole education system was way different back then. It's not, he was, he was a smart guy, but it was much different. Um, but he, he took very, as he studied the Word of God himself, he began to become very aware of the need to get the Word of God to the people. Um, after he uh, entered into um, Oxford in thir- 1346, within one year, the Black Plague hit, and one-third of Europe's population were decimated, and he began, very, he began to become very sensitive to the need to get the Word of God to the people. And um, he worked hard at Bible translation, and he aggressively, as he did that, he wanted to make sure that people had it in their own language. Uh, at this point, up to this point, it had only been in Latin, and it was uh, roped off, and you couldn't access it unless you were clergy. And even some clergy didn't even know how to read it themselves. They knew the ritual, but they didn't know how to to work it. The monks knew how to translate the Latin, but they the, the, they just knew how to say the words. Um, and so he, he, he was uh, very aggressive, championing the superiority of the Scriptures over the word of the Pope, and obviously that's going to put him in a bad position. Um, and he said, it is impossible for any part of the Holy Scripture to be wrong, and in the Holy Scripture is all truth. And he began translating Scriptures. Um, the Archbishop of Canterbury uh, published a document in opposition to him, and declared forcefully that no one should be reading the book. We therefore decree and ordain that no man hereafter by his own authority translate any text of Scripture into English or any other tongue, and that no man can read any such book in part or in whole. And that was the standing uh, stance that the church took. And yet, Wycliffe gathered followers around him that were Folk, they were folk named Lollards, and um, they would travel the countryside and they would teach uh, young plowmen and, and people who were working in the farms and, and share with them bits and pieces of the Word of God. And they would take with them a copy of Wycliffe's translation and teach directly. Um, uh, over a hundred years after Wycliffe in 1519 in Coventry, England, the law, there were seven Lollards that were burned at the stake 
I guess they were so effective, the church felt like they had to make a, an assertive statement against it, and they burned seven of these men at the stake because they taught children to pray the Lord's Prayer in English. Can you imagine? Um, Wycliffe is not only uh, an advocate for the Scriptures, but he also um, was very strong on the need for justification by faith alone. Prior to this point, the church had engineered a system that you would be justified by your works. And he began to read the Scriptures and recognize what Luther also recognized, that the Scriptures do not put it in that perspective. Our works are an expression of the faith that we have for Christ. And uh, you can't get that out of order. Um, He said, our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient for salvation and that without faith it is impossible to please God, and that the merit of Christ is able by itself to redeem all mankind from hell. And this sufficiency is to be understood without any other cause concerning. And so that uh, was the effect of Wycliffe and really prepared England to be ready to receive the gospel after the, ref- the official Reformation started to break out. Um, no, he, he was able to live out his days. Um, you might be thinking of um, William um, Tyndale, yeah. So, John Huss, though, was burned at the stake. Um, John Huss was uh, from Prague, from Czechoslovakia, Czech, Czech Republic, actually, technically. Um, he was a preacher at Bethlehem Chapel. He agreed with Wycliffe on his understanding of the Scriptures, but he had kind of a reserve stance towards the communion, and he, he still upheld transubstantiation, but he was starting to recognize deficiencies, and um, he clearly understood what church, early church fathers recognized about the church, that the true church, the elect church, is the true church, and the organized church is not the true church. And so he was a, a recognized God's working in the world and identifying a universal true church. And so I think it's, it's an important independent congregations to some degree, but he just, you could be in a church and not be a part of the true church. That's what he was saying. And, and just because you do something doesn't mean it's so. So you, you, you've got your child baptism, you've, got your, you, you've gone to um, communion. Yeah, you, you can check all the boxes, but be not really there, a part of the true church. And um, so he argued that preaching, not the Eucharist, was the central act and authority of the church. The church is responsible for the proclamation of the word. That is the most important thing. At the Council of Constance, he was called to, to meet a, a group of bishops, and he had been told by the emperor that he would give him free passage, in other words, protected passage. But when he arrived at the city of Constance, he was immediately thrown into prison. He probably would not have gone if that guarantee had not been made. And unfortunately... Uh, he was really never given a chance to defend his views, as he said he would have been. And he was mocked, he was bullied, stripped of his, his, his priestly garments, and, and the council committed his soul to the devil. And Huss countered and said, 
but I commit myself to my most gracious Lord Jesus. And the emperor's soldiers then burned Huss at the stake on July 6, 1415, and he refused a last-minute pardon opportunity, and he said, I shall die with joy today in the faith of the gospel which I have preached. Um, and on his way to the pyre, uh, John Huss said, you're going to burn a goose, but in 100 years you will have a swan which you can neither roast nor boil. Now, does anyone know what John, what the word Huss means, the last name? It means goose. So they might be burn this goose, but in 100 years, and actually in 1515, Luther began reading the book of Romans. And Luther's coat of arms, his family coat of arms, is that of a swan. Pretty remarkable. So Huss's martyrdom in Czech Republic sparked a lot of outrage. A lot of people started to begin to recognize that the church had overstepped its grounds. And uh, that region of Europe were refugees for some of the first uh, persecuted uh, folks after the Reformation. So God was even in that preparing a place for people to come for refuge. So what we've talked about today is we've just kind of gone through an overview of the corruptions that have occurred in the Catholic Church um, and the need for reform. And God was preparing for that. And uh, I think we can recognize that no matter how dark it is and how it seems as though the light has gone out, God always has a remnant and He is able to resurrect true believers that will respond to faith. Yes, correct. And I didn't note, I failed to note this, but I'll close with this. A lot of the issues regarding purgatory, transubstantiation, a lot of these, if you actually examine the, the writings and the declarations, very few have any tied back directly to the Scriptures. And so that's a significant digression uh, from the truth. And so as we get to people reading the Word of God, we get closer to the truth. All right. Thanks for coming. Really appreciate your time and sticking around. And uh, may God bless you.